Thank you for being here tonight so we can gather as a family and honor our Lord on this day we call Good Friday. I can't wait to get into the message. So let's first, though, let's bow our heads and ask God to bless us as we open his word. Dear Heavenly Father, as we stand tonight at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray, dear Father, open our eyes so that we can see our Lord, our Savior, in new ways. Help us hear things we've never heard before. Help us feel things we've never felt before. Give us knowledge we never had and a faith to live for you like we never have before. Only you can do this, dear Father. No one here came tonight to hear a man speak. We came to hear you speak, and we know you will do that. And we ask this in the name that is above every name, honor, and heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you keep your Bibles open to uh, Luke that Sean read so beautifully for us. Sean described what took place on the day we call Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that divided the world. When we look at the cross where Jesus died, each one of us has to make a decision. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? Yes or no? Jesus was crucified on a mound of earth they called the skull, also known as Golgotha in the uh, Aramaic um, and uh, Calvary in Latin. The place was just a little ways outside of Jerusalem because the Jewish law prohibited executions and burials inside the city. So this was just a little ways outside the city. The Bible doesn't tell us how old Jesus was when he was crucified, but most scholars think he was about 33 years old. Let's talk about the events that led up to the crucifixion. Jesus had an amazing ministry. Wherever he went, he performed incredible miracles. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He was out in the middle of a raging storm, and he rebuked it. He said, knock it off. And the waves stopped, the wind stopped, and it got smooth as glass. He healed people from every disease, leprosy, blindness, crippled. He, he, raised, he raised people from the dead. He was kind and gentle. He was loving, forgiving, passionate, and compassionate. But Jesus made enemies. People wanted to kill him. Not because of what he did, but because of what he said. So what did Jesus say that made people hate him? Three things, primarily. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. He taught that he is the only way to God. And he also said that he is God. The Jewish leaders were outraged. They denounced Jesus as a blasphemer and started to plot how they were going to get rid of him. It took them a while, but they finally figured out a plan and they trumped up some charges, accused Jesus of being an enemy of Rome, put him on trial for his life. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Roman Judea. And since Jerusalem was there, Jesus was arrested there. Pontius Pilate had held court and Jesus came before him. Pilate's mama didn't raise no dummy. Pilate 
saw Jesus and immediately realized this is a political hot potato. Don't want to deal with it. Hey, wait a minute. Jesus is from Galilee. I know. I'll send him over to Herod. That'll be Herod's jurisdiction. Who's Herod? Remember Herod? He's also known as Antipas. He's famous or infamous for having John the Baptist beheaded. He was delighted that Pilate sent Jesus to him because he always wanted to meet him. And he was hoping Jesus would come in and, and, and do some magic, perform some miracles for him. But Jesus refused. He would not answer any of Herod's questions. He would not put on a show. So Herod and his soldiers mocked him, ridiculed him, dressed him up in a royal robe, and sent him back to Caesar, uh, to, to, uh, not Caesar, to Pilate, like he was a big joke. Ironically, these two men, these two re- rulers, uh, Pilate and Herod, didn't like each other until this happened. Luke tells us in his gospel that these two bonded and they became friends over their handling of Jesus. Isn't that nice? When Jesus showed back up in Pilate's court, he insisted Jesus is innocent. There's no guilt here. But the, the Jewish leaders insisted, no, he's an enemy of Rome. It was the custom of the Roman governor to release one prisoner. At this time, it was Passover. So, you know, uh, Caesar, uh, keeps calling him Caesar, Pilate. Pilate went and brought out a real beauty, a, a scoundrel, a murderer named Barabbas. And he came out and he said, okay, people, who, who do you want me to let go? Do you want the killer Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And those rulers incited the crowd to scream and yell, set Barabbas free. As for Jesus, they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate feared that people might riot. So he did that ceremonial hand wash, remember that? And said, okay, have it your way. He sent Jesus off to be flogged, which meant he basically beat Jesus within an inch of his life. Almost killed him. Then released him to be crucified. And that brings us to the section that Sean read for us. All those people, many of those people that were there shouting for his crucifixion now showed up at the cross to be there to watch and to mock. If you read the accounts in the other Gospels, they were having fun. They were doing a competition. Who could get the biggest laugh at Jesus' expense as he hung there in agony? What an ugly scene. Can you picture that sitting there? Can you imagine watching somebody really die on the cross? Crucifixion was such a horrible death that we get our word excruciating from the Roman word for crucifixion. As Jesus hung on the cross, those leaders, people passing by, sneered at him. They said in verse 35, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Let's think about that. They shouted, he saved others. How did they know Jesus saved others? They were eyewitnesses. They saw it with their own eyes. They saw Jesus do things only God can do. They saw all those miracles I just described. They saw Jesus do those, but instead of falling on their knees in front of him, they hurled insults. Shows us how blind we can be in our disbelief. Matthew's Gospel tells us this, that the people were saying these things. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Or somebody else would say, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The people that gathered at the cross who had seen Jesus do countless miracles, now we're clamoring, one more. Just, just one more, Jesus, okay? Give us a big one. Prove once and for all that you're the Messiah and we will believe. 
What did they want Jesus to do to prove that he was really the Messiah? They wanted Jesus to save himself, come down from the cross. I have to tell you, as a young boy, hearing this story, I always wish Jesus had agreed. I just would have loved to see Jesus on the cross. Maybe he says, you want me to prove myself? You want me to come down from the cross? And then with a wink or a, a movement of his finger, instantly, he's off the cross. He's standing there healthy and whole. And every one of those mockers are on their own cross and they're nailed all the way to a line, all the way back to the city gates. And come to them and go, any more requests, fellas? But as a boy, I made the same mistake those mockers made. They wanted Jesus to prove himself by coming off the cross. Jesus on Good Friday proved beyond a shadow of a doubt he was the Messiah the Son of God, by staying on the cross, by dying on the cross, just as the Scripture said he would. People there were too blind to see that. I pray we're not too blind to see that. If Jesus had saved himself, you and I would be lost. Good Friday is the day that divided the world between two groups, believers and unbelievers. Good Friday is really an eye test, a vision test. Here's the test. We can do it now together. When you look at Jesus on the cross, what do you see? Is Jesus a victim or the victor? Victim or victor. On the surface, it's easy to see Jesus as the victim. He's hanging there dying. He's alone. He's surrounded by enemies laughing at him. But the truth is, is Jesus hung there suffering and dying. He wasn't a victim in any sense of the word. He was the victor. He was in complete control. How do we know that? I'll show you. John 10, 17 to 18. He said this earlier. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus said no one can take his life from him. But he will lay it down and raise it back on his own terms. And the cross, as horrible as it was, were his terms. A few hours before Jesus was crucified, they came to arrest him. So uh, Judas was there, some of the religious leaders were there, and they brought a couple hundred Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had torches, they had swords, they had clubs, they had body armor, they had numbers. And what happened? In uh, John 18, 3 to 6, let me read this to you. You know this part probably, but it's wonderful. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell down. Fell to the ground. He bowled the whole army over. Just by saying three little words, I am he. I am he is a designation that Jesus used before to declare himself to be God. 
the power of him standing right in front of them saying, I am God, made them draw back and fall over. I don't know if they fell forward or backward, but they hit the dirt. Then they got up, dusted themselves off, and Jesus let them take him like he was powerless to resist. Why? Why did Jesus let them take him? He gave us the answer in Matthew 20, 28. He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come into the world to save himself. He came into the world to sacrifice himself for helpless sinners like you, like me, and find salvation and forgiveness. Matthew's Gospel told us that also Peter drew a sword. Remember, Peter was a fisherman, probably not a swordsman, but he drew his sword. Swung it and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus immediately healed the servant, told Peter to put the sword away, and then said this. Let me read this to you. It's in Matthew 26, 53 to 54. Jesus said, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus could have called more than 12 legions of angels to help him. How many is that? I did some math. Not my strong suit, but I did some math. A Roman legion was about 6,000 men. So 12 legions of angels would be about 72,000 angels. You think... 72,000 angels could have protected Jesus from those couple hundred soldiers? Would you like to know how much damage one angel can do? I'll tell you. I won't tell you. The Word of God will tell you. Um, in Isaiah 37:36, and also a parallel verse in 2 Kings 19:35, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning... There were all the dead bodies. One angel killed 185,000 enemies of God. What do you think would have happened if Jesus called down 72,000 angry angels? Jesus surely would have saved himself. And we would surely be lost. Fact. The religious leaders did not put Jesus on the cross. The love of God did. Fact. The Roman nails did not hold Jesus on the cross. The love of God did. Fact. Jesus was not a victim. His death was his victory on our behalf. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, Sean read this for us, Jesus prayed this remarkable prayer. First off, think about the agony he's in. He's been beaten almost to death. Now he's being nailed to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them but they don't know what they're doing. Jesus clearly practiced what he preached. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 44, where he said, But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The soldiers divided Jesus' garments and they cast lots for them. Okay, this fulfilled prophecy, but it's much more than that. Think about this with me. We know that Jesus set aside his glory in heaven to come to earth as a simple servant. And on the cross... He gave up everything, even his clothes. Jesus came, became completely poor 
for us so we could become completely rich in him. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals, just like our Lord, to be identified with sinners to the very end. One criminal saw Jesus and believed. The other did not. The criminal that did not believe mocked Jesus. Crucifixion is really just a slow way to die of suffocation. So this man wasted precious air and energy to mock like everybody else. I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he wanted to go out with applause. I don't know what he was thinking, but he's mocking the Lord. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? Bonehead. I would add bonehead. That's not in there. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then the dying man looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. What a simple, humble, sweet profession of faith. Simple, short, little profession of faith. And Jesus' answer was immediate. He turned to him and he said, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see what just happened there? A lost and dying man sees Jesus and believes, and Jesus instantly gives him his personal guarantee of eternity in heaven, same as he does for you and I. That hasn't changed. Jesus meant what he said back in John 6:37, where he said so wonderfully, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out whether it's a criminal on the cross or you or me, when we come to Jesus in simple faith, he will never cast us away. I have to note that this crucified criminal is the only deathbed conversion in the Bible. Do you know that? The only deathbed conversion in the Bible. How gracious of God, though, to give us this example so that we don't despair as we pray for those that we love that haven't come to know the Lord yet. Do you have someone you've been praying for for years? The message of Good Friday is don't stop praying. Don't stop sharing Christ. Don't give up because it's all a matter of God's timing, not ours. But we also have to understand God gave us only one deathbed conversion. So none of us would presume we have time. Oh, we'll decide later. I'll wait till I'm on my deathbed. We may not have a deathbed. We don't know when that last breath will be. Jesus promised this man eternal life. And then somebody turned out the lights. Luke 23, 44-45 says, It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. I went online and read some historical... There's, there's, this is a matter of, of secular Roman history. They, they record this event of the sun and earthquakes happening at this time of day. So darkness fell over the land for three hours. If I was one of those unbelievers right about now, I'd be kind of looking around like, uh-oh. Matthew's Gospel adds that after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out something extraordinary. Matthew 27:46 says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As horrible as the physical pain and suffering was, this was the moment Jesus most dreaded. Because right now, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, bore all of our sin on him. 
Not in him, because he is still the perfect sinless Lamb of God, but on him. He was judged guilty in our place. He received the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the pain from God, the agony from God that was supposed to be for you and me. But the sinless one stepped in and took it in our place. So you and I never, ever have to face the wrath of God if we believe in Christ. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah foretold of this about 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53, 3-6. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and washed it white as snow. Look back at verse 44 and 45 again from Luke. It was about noon and the darkness fell over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple blocked the most holy place in the temple, the place where only the high priest could go one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Historians have written that this curtain, as they called it, in the temple in Jerusalem had these dimensions. And I had Mickey try to help me visualize this. The temple curtain was 60 feet high, so higher than the ceiling, we we decided. It was 30 feet wide, so kind of this width of this platform. And it was as much as four inches thick and woven like carpet. Clearly nothing somebody ripped by hand. And as Sean pointed out to us, it was the other Gospels tell us that it was torn from the top to the bottom. Surely the handiwork of God. When this temple curtain was torn, it signified at least two things. One, from now on, every man and woman and child has free access to the throne of grace. We can walk to the most holy, almighty God face-to-face, one-on-one, and have that loving relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And the second thing, no one should ever think again that God dwells in temples or church buildings or monuments built with hands. From now on, God's place of residence is in the life of each believer. In verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Jesus laid his life down on his own terms, just like he said he would, when his work for us was finished. On Easter, on Pastor Sunday, on Easter Sunday, Pastor John is going to tell us how Jesus raised that life back up again, just like he said he would. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel tells us he also said, surely this is the Son of God. Here was this pagan Roman soldier. He saw Jesus on the cross and he believed. But most of the people did not. Look at verse 48. So sad. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, 
They beat their breasts and went away. Luke is the only gospel to record this note that they beat their breasts and walk away. Beating their breasts means they walked away in remorse and anguish. But it doesn't say they believed. They didn't believe like the centurion did. Which brings us right back to where we started this message. Good Friday is the day that divided the world. Then and now, we need to look at the cross and each one of us has to decide for ourselves. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he my Savior? Is he my Messiah? Is he my Lord and King? Or am I just going to look and walk away? The death of Jesus on the cross divided the world. But for those of us who believe in him, his death made us whole forever. That's why we celebrate Good Friday every day of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not coming off that cross to save yourself like I wanted you to when I was a boy and like all those people wanted you to that mocked you. Thank you, dear Savior, for loving each one of us more than life itself. Thank you, Lord, for dying for our sins, for suffering the wrath, the judgment that was meant for us. But you, we deserved it. You did not, but you took it on yourself. You became sin so that we could have peace with God. Thank you for your promise that you will never ever cast any of us away that come to you in faith. Thank you for your personal guarantee of eternal life, paradise, heaven, when we put our faith in you. Lord, we love you. We bow down before you as our Lord and our God. But please, dear Lord, don't let anyone walk away tonight without believing in you from this day forward. Please open their eyes so they may not be blinded by unbelief. We ask this in the name that we treasure above all names our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.